Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. I'm glad you are here. I'm glad we get to talk about our Savior. Man, life is good. This week in Come Follow Me, we're scheduled to study. Scheduled to study, man. That's tough for me to say. That does not roll off my tongue easily. Um, Doctrine and Covenants 10 and 11. But we already looked at section 10 when we looked at the loss of the 116 pages. So we're going to look at section 11. And we're going to pair section 11 back with section 4 and with section 12 and 14 and 16 because, as you will see, they are all very similar. Um, And so then we'll we'll move on to to section 13 and the restoration of the uh, Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek priesthood next week. So here's the context for what we're going to talk about today. After Joseph and Oliver had received the Aaronic uh, and Melchizedek priesthood, which we'll talk about at length next time, like I said, with section 13, things start heating up again in harmony. And it's again beginning to become, um, beginning to be difficult to translate the Book of Mormon. But where do they go? Uh, they can't go to Joseph's house. Uh, they went to Emma's house and that's not working. So where else do they go? Well, Oliver has been writing his friend David Whitmer the whole time, keeping David informed on the exciting unfolding of this scripture. So Oliver writes David and asks if they can come translate in the Whitmer home in Fayette. Now, this is a pretty big ask. The Whitmers, Mary and Peter, had eight kids. David was number four. And these kids are all between the ages of 15 and 30. And the few of them that don't still live at home live nearby. And we're not talking about a big house. It's a 20 by 30 foot cabin, basically the size of my living room and dining room. I measured. So they are asking to add another three people to this chaos. And they're asking, since they are broke as a joke, for David Whitmer to bring his wagon and team down to Harmony and help them move. Fortunately for Joseph and for us, the Whitmers are a generous bunch. And when David reads Oliver's letter to his parents and siblings, they all agree to welcome them. But David's dad reminded uh, him that it was planting season and they needed to get the fields ready to plant a crop of wheat so that they could eat later because eating is important. Now, this would include at least a two-day delay while David plowed 20 acres and enriched the soil with plaster of Paris. So the next morning, David walks out to the fields and saw, to his surprise, that the rows uh, had already been plowed. They had been unplowed the evening before, and suddenly they just appear plowed. Exploring the fields further, he saw that about six acres had been plowed overnight, and the plow was waiting for him in the last furrow, ready for him to finish the job. Huh. That's weird. The next morning, David took a wooden wooden measure, like a kind of a wooden spreader, kind of like a scoop, we would say, and he goes out to sew the plaster of Paris, which he had left in heaps near his sister's house. But he comes to the heaps and the heaps are gone. Man, somebody jacked his plaster of Paris. What is going on here? So he ran, runs to his sister and she's like, do you know what happened to my plaster of Paris? And she's like, why do you ask me? Wasn't it all sewn yesterday? And he's like, not to my knowledge. And she's like, I'm astonished at that. For my, uh, She's like, my kids came up in the morning and begged me to go see some men that were sewing plaster in the field, saying that they never saw anybody sew plaster so fast in their lives. They go on, and she goes on, and she's like, I went, and I saw three men at work in the field, as the children said, 
And I just thought you had hired somebody on account of your hurry. So I went in the house and didn't give it any other thought. Come on now, that's cool. Mysterious strangers just plowing your fields in the middle of the night, sewing your plaster of Paris so that you can go help this work. So <laughs> it's time to go help this work. So David hitches up the team and heads off uh, to Harmony, packs up Joseph Oliver. Emma's going to show up later and uh, come up to the house later. And they come back to Fayette and squeeze into some available nook and cranny, although I'm straight baffled to understand where. It is so crazy and cramped and hot up there that Mary Whitmer, the mother, is just exhausted. It's summertime, it's hot, it's muggy, and Mary is running around washing clothes, preparing meals, while Oliver and Joseph are upstairs translating in the loft. Now, Oliver usually is the scribe, but sometimes during this time, Emma spells him for a bit, or one of the Whitmer brothers will jump in. Um, When Joseph and Oliver want a break, they'll go down to a pond nearby and skip rocks, but Mother Mary, in typical mom fashion, does not take any breaks to skip rocks. So one day she's out by the family barn, and she sees a gray-haired man with a knapsack slung across his shoulder. Like, he shows up out of nowhere, and she's kind of taken aback. She's surprised. She jumps back. Um, But he approaches her, and he speaks in a kind voice, and he just says, My name is Moroni. You've become pretty tired with all the extra work you have to do. So he takes his knapsack, his back sat back off his shoulder, and Mary watches as he unties it, and he says, you've been very faithful and diligent in your labors. It's proper, there, uh, therefore, that you should receive a witness that your faith may be strengthened. So he opens the backpack, removes the gold plates, holds them in front of her, turns their pages so that she could see the writing on them. After he turns the last page, he, he just urges her to be patient and faithful and carry on a little longer. And, and he promises that she'd be blessed for it. And then he vanishes and, and leaves Mary alone. She's like, that's just the jolt I needed to, to regain the energy. Anyway, while they're translating, David... Oliver's bestie, and his two brothers, John and Peter Jr., come and ask for a revelation. Now, this is pretty common for this time period with Joseph. Like, he's this mediator, this seer. It's the same thing that his dad, Joseph Smith Sr., had done and resulted in section four. And his older brother, Hiram, had done the exact same thing a few weeks earlier, giving us section 11. It's what Joseph Knight Sr. had done right before they left Harmony, giving us section 12. Let's take just a quick side note pause on Joseph Knight Sr. Joseph Knight Sr. first meets Joseph um, when Joseph's working for Josiah Stoll, digging for buried treasure. He, he immediately almost uh, believes and becomes a big supporter of Joseph Smith. He helps uh, Joseph to woo Emma by letting Joseph borrow his sled in the winter to take her around because you can't be picking up your date on your bike and having her stand on the pegs. I don't know. Maybe you can. That sounds pretty fun to me, actually. I don't know if Kristen would be down for it, though. Anyways, um, he, he was visiting Joseph in Palmyra when Joseph got the plates, uh, again, providing the transportation, a carriage, so Joseph could ride with Emma to the hill. When they moved to Harmony, he often provided them with food and writing supplies so that they could do the work. So you have all these people, Joseph Smith Sr., Hiram Smith, Joseph Knight Sr., and David, John, and Peter Whitmer, all asking the same question. What is the most valuable thing I can be doing right now? Now, this is a pretty common thing. 
Once we have food, water, shelter, security, and love, everybody is looking for a way to contribute. We are created by God to long for a way to make a mark, an impact, to influence the world in a positive way. This is basically universal. And these sections are, are going to, to show us and reinforce this, um, this, these desires. They're going to show us what we can do. They're going to re- reinforce these desires as natural and achievable and good. But I'm also going to warn you but that what God tells us is not quite what we expect sometimes when we're thinking about what my purpose should be. Usually, when we're wondering about our purpose, we're looking at, for guidance on how to make the best impact. Like, we're, we're looking at what is God's personal mission for me on this earth? Like, what career should I, I start? Or what's a side project I can do in a way that only I can contribute? And though your job or a side hustle can be an effective way to contribute, God doesn't seem all that concerned uh, as to whether you're a doctor or a teacher, an engineer or a plumber or an office manager, you work at Target or whatever. Jobs and employment and other things are just icing on the cake. He suggests in these sections instead that there is a deeper and a universal way that we can each contribute in a meaningful way. Now, one more time before we get to the text, I want to pause and address this idea of an universal way to contribute meaningfully. Because as you will see in the upcoming sections, the advice given to these six men who have very different personalities, backgrounds, talents, and skills is very similar, like exactly similar in some cases. Like they basically have a photocopy of the other person's patriarchal blessing and the guy tells them that 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 is their own blessing. We really don't like this idea. We like the idea that we are each unique snowflakes with a unique contribution to make and the idea that there is some uniform way to contribute is distasteful to us. I blame syndrome for this problem. You remember Syndrome, right? From Incredibles, Buddy Pine. He wants to become Mr. Incredible's sidekick as Incrediboy, but Bob wisely rejects the offer because of the harm that could come to the young man. However, this rejection twists in Buddy, turning him into a bitter supervillain, villain, villain, villain who boldly declares, when everybody is super, no one will be. And that just isn't true. When everybody is special or super, then everybody is special or super. That in no way is a statement about sameness or that you don't have a role to play. If the objective is to save the human race, then if the Incredibles series one and two teaches us anything, it is that both Bob and Helen are great at being incredible. They're both super but also that they accomplish their objectives in different ways, and that is good. Just as another side note, Jack-Jack is the greatest superhero of all time. Keep your Superman, Batman, Iron Man, Hulk, whatever, Jack-Jack is the greatest. Anyway, back to our story. What I'm telling you is that God is going to give us a universal mission, a key that will help us find meaning, purpose, and identity personally and for others then he is totally okay as we go about using our own strengths and skills to accomplish it in our way. God is not looking for clones. He likes diversity. Just look around at the way he made us. 
Like, for example, one of my seminary teaching friends, he is one of the most effective gospel teachers I know. Charismatic, funny, approachable, with a genuine connection to students and teachers, but also with a propensity at times to fly by the seat of his pants. As he was trying to get hired as a seminary teacher, he was finishing up his bachelor's degree at the same time and he was completing the student teaching experience. So near the end of the semester, he's carrying a heavy load of um, classes with a big final exam coming up and he spent almost all his time preparing for that final exam. So he showed up to teach seminary, the story of David and Goliath that day, with a basic lesson plan. They would read the story, discuss the gospel principles, and then, for fun, they would sling, uh, slingshot marshmallows at a giant poster of Goliath. Unfortunately for him, this was also the day that his supervisors came to watch him teach to evaluate whether or not he should get hired. Well, it started out solid. They went through the story, the discussion, the object lesson, everybody having a chance to shoot their marshmallows at their own personal Goliath. But then he looked at the clock and realized that there was still like 30 minutes left in class. And you can't just let sophomores out into the world unattended. It's like letting gremlins get wet. So he said, everybody line up again. Let's shoot Goliath all over. He was deeply embarrassed. And as you can imagine, his supervisors had some grumpy looks on their faces. But his good humor, relatability, and love for the Savior are irrepressible. His students left that day full of joy and committed to God. This is quite a different approach from my hot wife, uh, like an equally capable and spiritual teacher. But she has never met a problem that she wasn't prepared for with five separate contingency plans. You should see her pack for a trip, man. I mean, she will script girls camp activities eight months beforehand down to the minute and color code it all in a binder plan that looks like Leslie Nope got into some Ritalin. It's outstanding. What I'm saying is that uh, this mission God is about to give these six men is universal. If you will adopt this mission as your own, it will give your life meaning and purpose and fulfillment. But it will also be up to you to use your strengths and individual flavor. All those different flavors that you represent, from plain salted to barbecue, from dill pickle to jalapeno and salt and vinegar, like all of the flavors. So let's jump in. God starts with this statement. He says, a great and marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. In other words, there is something amazing coming. I'm going to, in his words, quote, establish my Zion, end quote. To put it another way, God is saying, I'm going to make this broken, polluted, violent place into heaven. Like here, right here, I'm going to bring heaven here. How am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to transform the very fabric of this planet and society. He goes on to say uh, in verse, uh, section 11, verse 30, I say unto you that as many as receive me, to them will I give power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on my name. So, so follow what I'm saying. He's saying, I'm going to do something that's going to absolutely, tr- it's going to transform you. It's going to transform who you are. Behold, the field is white already to harvest. There's a great opportunity here. Therefore, whoso desireth to reap, let him thrust in his sickle with all his might. Yea, whosoever will thrust in his sickle and reap the same is called of God. He's using farming analogies with farmers here, not so much our analogies, but he's basically saying, so do you want to help? Well, then you can help. 
I, I want you to just get started. Like, don't wait for the perfect situation. Don't wait for the perfect plan. Just do something. Try to help. And I'll, that's awesome. So how do you start? If you go to, to verse 10, he says, behold, thou hast a gift. I would say the same to you. You have a gift. Uh, or thou shalt have a gift if thou will desire of me in faith. I'll, I'll let you know. With an honest heart, believing in the power of Jesus Christ, or in my power which speaketh unto thee. For behold, it is I that speak. Behold, I am the light which shineth in the darkness. And by my power, I give these words unto thee. Like you have a gift. If you'll come to me, I'll magnify it. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, who created the heavens and the earth, a light which cannot be hid in darkness. Again, hearken the words of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Redeemer. He's saying, believe in me. So if you believe in Jesus, then the thing that will be of most worth unto you will be to declare repentance unto this people, that you may bring souls unto me, that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my Father. Say nothing but repentance unto this generation. What does he mean by this being our mission to, to go out and say nothing but repentance? What do we mean by this? Well, repentance simply means a change of mind. It's a fresh view about yourself. So what does it mean to have a fresh view about yourself? It means that we come to deeply believe that Jesus is our sacrifice, that we are saved by him and his grace, that we don't have to try and save ourselves anymore. We don't have to look good or lose five pounds or have a six pack or always say witty things to be saved, to be worthy, to be honored, to be loved. We are saved by Jesus. We are loved by him. And then he's saying, I want you then to help others trust me, to have the same sort of hope and trust that, that you have developed, this testimony, if you will. Well, how do we do this? He says, well, therefore... O ye that embark on the service of God, those of you who want to reach out and help transform people, help, to, help them to discover their, their meaning, their value, their worth, their goodness. He says, see that you serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that you may stand blameless before God at the last day. He's just saying, if you want to do this, just be all in. Just commit and just go for it. You don't have to be perfect. Just go for it. Try and help other people. Try and help yourself. Believe in Jesus. You see, if you don't commit, it doesn't work. Have you ever tried to date a girl while at the same time trying to date another girl? Yeah, me neither. But it seems like it would be hard. I have tried to take a bike jump before and chickened out. I wasn't all in. I twisted my ankle so bad that my friend had to carry me to my bike. I, I was like a cripple right there. I've never felt like more of a child. I sat down on the bike seat and cruised down without putting any pressure on my ankle. Oh, it hurts so much. Or I've been to, to, to Lake Powell before where we went cliff jumping and a friend of mine chickened out halfway down and started flailing their arms. Dude, when you are partway through a cliff jump, that is the last point you need to chicken out. You need to be all in. Point those toes, okay? But flapping around, oh, the slap as her thigh hit the water. It was insta-purple, insta-bruise right there. But some people are uncomfortable with this idea of being fully committed to God or his church. Like it feels like it's just too much. Like God is expecting too much of us here. Well, consider the story of my, a friend I have in my ward. He says, I got my mission call in 1978 to the Dearborn, Michigan mission. 
and as we were buying my things before I reported the MTC, my dad met me in the driveway one day and told me that my mom was sick. I decided to press forward and still serve. And as I served, I could trace the sickness spreading through my mom, not so much by what she said, but rather in how her handwriting began to deteriorate in the handwritten letters. By the time I'd been out 14 months, I received a letter that was indecipherable. I had no idea what she had written. A few days later, my mission president called. Uh, my mission president, he said, was an older man. He says, I, I just remember talking to him and I just saw his, his big bushy eyebrows, you know, that older guys get sometimes. He sat me down and said that my older sister had called and my mom had passed away. Very real ache. Is it too much to ask that this young man be all in, to be away from his family at this time? He didn't seem to think so because he was engaged in a cause. He now has grandkids himself and he looks forward to a time that his grandkids will meet his mom. He is sure of it. That is why he was out there. That is the message he was giving. That's why he stayed there because he wanted to give that same hope to others. He said at the time he was working with a young missionary from Las Vegas, he had trained him and this was a good kid, but their personalities just didn't click. He said, I was sure glad there was other, two other guys in our apartment because just I, I had nothing left to talk about with this kid. Now, I even asked the APs, why are you keeping us together? It's been like five months. Like, let us both have a different experience. But even with this, and they moved forward, he said, I was, I was district leader in Bloomfeld, the, the wealthiest stake in the church at the time. And we were teaching the Tates. Uh, we were the ones that knocked on their door. It was a mom, a dad, and three kids, two boys and a girl. We taught them and taught them and prayed for them. We worked with their, their mom as she battled a bad smoking problem, battled to overcome it. But we wanted them to have the same hope we felt. I st- still remember, he says, coming home one night and Bob Tate said, we've decided to become members of the church. I don't remember being so happy or excited. So happy. At this same time, just a couple of days after I found out about my mom, we got another call from the mission president asking them to come again. Um, the mission president sat us down and told us this time that his companion's dad had just died that morning from heart surgery. That's why they were together so long. God had a purpose for this young man. Is it too much to ask to serve him with all your heart, might, and strength to be all in? I don't know, consider it. So, so what if you decide that this is for you? What if you decide that, that you want to build a better world through building faith in Jesus Christ by, by helping people turn to him with all their hearts? How do you do this to the best of your ability? Well, first he says, I, you need not suppose that you are called to preach until you're called. Wait a little longer until you should have my word, my rock, my church, my gospel, that you may know uh, of a surety my doctrine. And then behold, according to your desires, even according to your faith, it shall be done unto you. Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. Then your tongue shall be loosed. Then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. But now, Hold your peace and study my word, which has gone forth among the children of men. And also study my word, which shall come forth among the children of men. Talking about the Book of Mormon. Keep my commandments, hold your peace, and appeal to the Spirit. 
Ask and ye shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened unto you by the Spirit. And now, verily, verily, I say unto you, put your trust in that Spirit which leadeth to do good. Yea, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously. And this is my spirit. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I will impart unto you of my spirit, which shall enlighten your mind, which shall fill your soul with joy. Man, this is good stuff, right? He, he, he's saying, hey, if you want to contribute, just dig in, pray, get into the scriptures. Let them start to, to be part of your soul. And you'll notice that God will start to lead you. God's really subtle in how he does it, really simple. Like he's saying, just spend some time with me. Spend some time with Jesus and the Spirit and you'll see the, the atonement begin to work in you. You see, the atonement is a gift. And the more time you spend with it, the more you use it, the more it begins to play divid- pay dividends. Sorry. Like we have at our house a very simple gaming console. It's an old school Wii like Mario Kart, Wii Sports, Madden, etc. And I got to tell you that this gift is wasted on me. I just haven't spent enough time with it to appreciate. One of the most frustrating things in my life is losing to my children at Mario Kart. I'm the one that actually knows how to drive here. Then I'm on Rainbow Road endlessly. I mean, endlessly falling off the edge. I don't know if I have ever finished a single lap of Rainbow Road, and that includes getting the rocket by the time my oldest son has finished the whole course. Like, it's embarrassing. You, you see, when you spend some time with a gift, it becomes more useful to you. It becomes more fun. So God tells Joseph Smith Sr., by no means a perfect person, and Joseph has, as Sr. has tried so hard to provide for his family only to lose his farm over and over again and to have his family move all over the place. He struggles with drinking. He's going to lose the nice house that his oldest son, uh, who is now dead, started building for him. Not perfect. Sometimes we, we take the section four checklist that is given to um, Joseph Smith Sr. and we say, okay, God will let me be of work or help in his work once I become perfect. Then I can work for God. Then I can move forward. No, that's not what he's saying. That denies the basic premise of the gospel. The basic premise is that God works through imperfect people. This is a list of things uh, that isn't a precursor to God's work so much as it is an outcome of God's work with you. Consider that in that list, there, there's a, it says brotherly kindness. When I was a missionary, I just liked people, like people I ordinarily would have thought were sketchy. Living in homes of scavenged wood, rough language, education, getting drunk and smoking. Like I met a guy in this situation, no job, living alone, separated from his family in a one room, literal lean to shack with only a giant lizard that he somehow adopted for company. He drank too much, smoked like a chimney when he could eat his hands on cigarettes and struggled by every metric one could create to measure human life. And I liked him. I liked almost all the people I met in similar circumstances. This is like, this isn't a statement about me. I didn't even try. It wasn't like I made a five-step plan on how I was going to treat these people with kindness. It just happened as I lived with them, taught them, ate with them, and laughed with them. As you participate with God in his work, not trying to prove yourself or do it all by yourself, but letting him be God and you just bringing your loaf to offer, the outcome is going to be the attributes listed in these sections. 
Like you're going to become more humble. This is tied to faith. This means that you trust God more than you trust you. Your faith is going to increase, meaning you're going to have greater trust in God's ability. You're going to worry less. You're just going to let it go. You're going to choose to, to trust him. And your hope, uh, this overall sense of optimism for the future, but a very particular hope for your future life with God is going to increase. Charity and love you're just going to like yourself more because you're not trying to earn heaven. You're loved by him. So you're going to be okay with yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. You're still going to have people that are going to be just as annoying as they always were. But you're going to be okay with that because you're going to recognize that it's not your job to fix them. You're not Jesus. It's Jesus and he's going to take care of it. You're going to have more virtue in your life. Now, we usually use this as a reference to sexual purity and spending time with Jesus will help. It doesn't mean you will cease to find other people attractive, but it means that you will find you have capacity to prioritize your thoughts and your actions. But virtue also just uh, responds to any positive attribute and characteristics. In other words, Jesus is going to take your natural flavor and make it pop. He's going to take your strengths and make them better. He's going to give you knowledge. You know what knowledge is. And then temperance even. This is probably the most underrated virtue that goes with hanging out with Jesus. It just means moderation, chill. It means that you don't run faster than you're able. Don't be lazy. Don't be crazy. Just be with Jesus. You're going to have more patience with everything, but especially with yourself. Just let God take his time with you. Don't be such an instant gratification person like I got to change right now. Brotherly kindness, we already talked about this, but you don't have to force this. This is something where God is going to be with you and help you to be less annoyed. Diligence, your, your ability to stick with it is going to increase. And then godliness, this is the legit outcome. We believe this. You're going to see in future sections, God really actually intends to give you all that he has for you to be a God. This is the outcome that's going to happen. Enduring to the end. He's going to give you the capacity to get up and begin again and again and again. Trust him enough to stay in this relationship. Don't treat this like a New Year's resolution to the gym where everybody's there in January. Now in February, y'all done. Treat this like the stuff you've accumulated in your shed. Just resolve to leave it there in your shed and see what happens. You'll like the result. Just, just stay in this relationship with Jesus and see what happens. See what he will do for you. So what is your mission? What is the thing of most value to you? Come help me with the work, God says. Come help me get others to trust in me, to move forward, to, to change their lives. Like Consider these three stories from master member missionary Clayton Christensen. Um, who, although a skilled economist and Harvard Business School professor, he saw his true mission in life to participate with God in his marvelous work. Here's one story. He says, I grew up in Rose Park, a wonderful neighborhood near downtown Salt Lake City. When I was a little boy, my dad home taught a man named Philip Strong. Philip had been baptized as a boy, but he hated the church. Every month, my faithful father would take me or one of my brothers as his home teaching companion to make his visits. We would knock on Philip's door. Philip would come out on the porch and command my dad to get off his property and never come back or I'll call the police. But every month, my faithful dad would knock on the door only to be told off <laughs> again. 
One year in November, a wind-driven rainstorm came through Salt Lake. It was so strong that it blew off a chunk of the roof from the main building on Welfare Square. Someone called my dad, who was in our bishopric, to see if he could get a group of men to go to Welfare Square and fix the problem. So my dad left work early and went door-to-door asking for volunteers. Most people said they would go. Um, Then he came to Philip Strong's house. It turns out Philip Strong was an experienced tradesman. My dad passed his house and then went to the next house. But then my dad stopped and said, no, I got to ask Philip Strong. He knocked on the door. And as happened each month, he was told to get off the porch. But dad said, Philip, I don't want you to come to church. I need your help. He explained the problem and said, I've got a couple of people. I got a group of people, but you are the one who knows how to fix problems like this. Can you just come and supervise this project? Philip Strong agreed to come. The men went up uh, on the roof about 5 p.m. They had to illuminate the site. Rain was still coming down. The winds were very strong. They worked until 11 p.m. on that freezing roof. My dad said every time he drove another nail into the tar paper, he felt like he was putting a nail into Philip's spiritual coffin because of the assignment felt so miserable. But when they climbed down from the roof, Philip put an arm around my dad's shoulder and said, I haven't felt this good in 20 years. And two weeks later, Philip Strong showed up to church. Story number two from from Clayton Christensen, right? He says, I was a home teacher to an elderly woman in our ward. On a Saturday in July, we we experienced the worst of Boston's weather. The temperature was at a nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and the humidity was above 90%. It was miserable. I decided that I had better visit Julia to be sure that she was okay. When I went into her home, I exclaimed to Julia, who had lost her sense of smell, something has died in this house. It smells awful. We followed the smell into her basement, where we saw the problem. The prior Christmas, her son, who lived in Florida, had shipped a case of grapefruit to his mother. Julia had put the case in an old refrigerator in her basement and then had forgotten that it was there. A bit later, she heard an advertisement suggesting that unused appliances should be turned off. So Julia went right down and unplugged the refrigerator. Over the subsequent months, the fruit had rotted and the mold was everywhere. Julia, we need to get this out of your house and get it in the dump, I told her. I went home and phoned through the ward list, but nobody was available. Desperate, I asked a non-member neighbor, Jim, to help. Several times previous to this, I had had asked Jim whether he might be interested to learn a bit about our wonderful church, but Jim had always kindly deflected my invitations. But to this call for help, he readily responded. Not only was it hot and humid that day, but the task took two hours of hard work. The old refrigerator was heavy, made of cast iron. As best we could tell, it was wider than Julia's rickety basement staircase, which had a two right uh, angle turns in it. So we had to take off the railings, and with WD-40, we got the door off the fridge. Soon our clothes were soaked with perspiration. When we reached the first turn in the staircase and had to balance the fridge on the landing, Jim said, So tell me about the Mormon church. Mopping my brow, I responded, frankly, Jim, 
Like it or not, this is the Mormon church. Then I explained how home teaching worked, noted how much this sister needed us, and illustrated how our own home teacher helped our family. I also told him that because graduate students and their families were moving in and out of our area all the time, our family was often helping someone load or unload a rental truck. Jim was incredulous. At our church, we just listened to the sermon and go home. I had no idea. I have no idea who might need my help. And there's no way they might know whether I needed their help. I like this kind of thing. The next time one of you Mormons need help, will you ask me? Story number three. Starting in 1976, a small group of Spanish-speaking members began meeting in their own Sunday school class in the Cambridge First Ward. By 1980, there was enough Spanish-speaking saints that a dependent branch had been organized. Shortly after this, a Spanish-speaking sister missionary, Carmen Francisco, was assigned to the branch. During her tenure in the branch, she and her companions brought about 50 people to the church. Most of these were sisters, many with, her young, many with young children who were baptized without their husbands. After Sister Francisco was released from her mission, she reported home in California, but then returned to Boston and found employment. She was quickly called to be the Relief Society president of the Cambridge Spanish branch and served as Relief Society president um, for a good time. As the t- at the time, the branch had about 40 active adult women and about six active uh, adult men. Sister Francisco challenged the Relief Society sisters to work on this issue, pointing out that if the branch were to ever uh, going to become a ward, they needed greater priesthood strength. The sisters determined to fast and pray over the entire weekend, asking God to send through the doors of the Cambridge Chapel on that Sunday a man who would become a great leader in the branch. So they fasted, and sure enough, that Sunday a new man walked through the door of the church building. But far from being a mature, capable leader they had fasted for, this young man was a 15-year-old immigrant from El Salvador, Jaime Valarezo, I'm bad at that, sorry, who had joined the church there with his mother. Jaime stuttered so badly he could not carry on a conversation with anyone except young children. Sister Francisco muttered to her counselor as they left the meeting that day, I can't believe that this is all God sent us after we fasted and prayed with such faith. That wasn't the end of the story, however. Jaime had a big heart. He came early to church and put out the Spanish hymn books and prepared the sacrament. And it turned out that Jaime had a wonderful way with children. When children would fuss during meetings, he would pick them up and play with them. The children grew to love Jaime. One day the missionaries were teaching a couple in the church building and they asked Jaime to look after their children so the parents wouldn't be distracted. Oh, I'm sorry, the story gets to me. not meaning to do this. The children enjoyed Jaime so much that they lobbied their parents to go back to church where Jaime was. And eventually the whole family was baptized. The missionaries began to take Jaime with them regularly, wherever his care of the children would help parents focus better on what the missionaries were teaching. This combination worked and the branch began to strengthen. One day a sacrament meeting drew to a close. The branch president called on Jaime to offer the closing prayer. There was an audible gasp from the audience. The people couldn't believe the branch president could be so insensitive to his speech handicap. But Jaime stood up and offered a beautiful prayer. Members commented afterwards that Jaime could now talk to children and to God, just not to adults. But that was to come. Jaime decided to serve a full-time mission. 
and he was blessed by the stake president, Gordon Williams, that he would become fluent of tongue. Jaime fulfilled a wonderful mission and gave a power-filled homecoming sacrament meeting talk to the much larger Cambridge Spanish branch. It was stunning. In not many years, an insecure boy who couldn't speak to adults had become a man who stood before them confident, articulate, and filled with the Spirit of God. After the hymn of benediction uh, at the end of Jaime's talk, no one rose to leave. They all just wanted to sit in the chapel and soak in the spirit that was in the room. Finally, a teenage boy arose and spontaneously bore his testimony. I just wanted to thank Jaime for all he's done for me. He said, ah, it's killing me. Sorry. Sorry, I know this isn't professional. This is bad podcasting. Um, And he said, I wanted Jaime to know that when I turn 19, I'm going to fulfill a mission just like he did. And then another boy arose, bore his testimony, thanked Jaime, and pledged that he too would fulfill a mission when he turned 19. One by one, 13 of the boys in the congregation arose to make that pledge to Jaime. 12 of the 13 boys fulfilled their pledge. Today, there are, and there are in the Boston area four Spanish-speaking units, two wards, and two branches. This fasting and prayers of the Relief Society sisters of the Cambridge Spanish branch were answered more powerfully than they could have hoped, but in God's way. The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. You have wanted to know what is of most worth for you to do? Well, I have an idea. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.